0: you um, and so this morning would you turn in your Bibles to the book of First Timothy? We're going to be in chapter six and look at verses 17 through 19. First Timothy 6:17 through19. hear the word of our God. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. So that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Father, we ask now that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word. That you would be at work in our hearts and in our congregation this morning. That we would be changed to image and reflect what Paul says in these three verses. We pray this in Jesus' great name. So we're working through our four ambitions, supplying theology and understanding to them. And so we want to add a second service. We're going to do that September 10th. We're going to call a second pastor, Lord willing. We're building up children's ministry and we're preparing to add for more space. And as we think about these four ambitions, all of these ambitions make demands on us. And so they make demands, for example, on our time and on our our talents, And that's what the first two challenge cards are all about. Signing up to serve our children takes up your time and your talents, maybe a Friday night. And they don't just take up our time and our talents, but as we, we consider, they also take up our, our, our minds. We, we think about them. Hopefully, we're thinking about them, and hopefully, they touch upon our hearts. And that's what... The, the third challenge card is about, we're, we're memorizing 1 Timothy 4.16 together as we, as we prepare to call a pastor that we would be shaped by this verse. And as we think about these demands, they're, 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 these, these ambitions are demanding of our time and our talents and, and our hearts, there's at least one ingredient missing from all of this, and that goes to our pocketbook, our, our money. So if we want to see these ambitions take shape in our midst, if we want this, these ambitions to move forward and be accomplished, we're going to have to, to give. And so the call this morning can be summarized down to one word, an imperative, and that is this, give, give. Now more can be said about this challenge than just the one word give, and we're going to say a lot this morning. I'm going to lay out some specific financial needs we have as a congregation, as we move forward And how you can pitch in and help out with that But before we get to any of the specifics about giving And what that might mean for you We need to hear from God's word And we need to be changed by God's word We need to hear from what Paul has to say In 1 Timothy six seventeen through 19 So I'm going to set the text up like this If you were to grab hold of a concordance Do you know what one of those are. You have one. When I graduated high school, I got a strong, exhaustive concordance from a family in church. It was like an anchor on my bookshelf. And so if you were to grab a concordance and look up the word money or riches or treasure, and you searched out every, every occurrence of that word and, and read all of the verses connected, what you would most likely find is some sort of warning. And what you find as you read through the Bible, cover to cover, as it talks about money and treasure and riches, is the Bible puts up this big danger sign in front of us. And as we think about our text this morning, Paul does this in our passage. He commands that Timothy charge the rich not to be haughty, not to be proud, not to be stuck up about their riches. And he charges Timothy to tell these folks not to set their hope upon their riches, and if you read First Timothy more, if you just move up a few verses in chapter 6, Paul gives another warning about riches. He says this, verses 9 and 10. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and, and harmful desires that plunge people to ruin and destruction, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. And so Paul is giving us warnings, and they're warnings we need. Paul is saying, watch out. There is a trap waiting for you. Don't step into it. Paul is saying, watch out. There is a path that leads away from the living God. Don't walk down that path. Paul is saying, watch out. There is something that can pierce you through. Don't fall upon that. Don't do it. Watch out. And as we think about Paul and connect him with the rest of the Bible, what Paul is doing is not unique. He is simply doing what other biblical authors are doing. Namely, he is doing what Jesus did. Just think about Jesus' ministry. In no certain terms, Jesus laid down the gauntlet to his followers. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, he said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. What is Jesus saying? You can only have one master. He's either God or it's filthy mammon. And some of Jesus' hardest sayings were about money. Perhaps you can remember when that young man came to Jesus and talked about following Jesus. And the disciples pulled Jesus aside afterwards, and they were shocked by what he said. They were astonished. And Jesus said this to them, Matthew nineteen twenty three and 24, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And I could go on listing off. Warnings, Because the Bible is full of warnings. You find them in the New Testament, in Jesus' ministry, in Paul's ministry, in the rest of the apostles' ministry. You go to the Old Testament. It's there in the law and the prophets and the writings. But I won't go on. But I want to take note of something here. It should get us thinking, shouldn't it? All of these warnings about riches and money. What are we dealing with here? We're dealing with God's word, and God is wise, and apparently, God knows something about us, his people. And what God knows is this we have a really hard time handling money well. Money is a potent object. Just think about all that money offers you day by day. Money or riches, it offers you measurable success. Money can give you benchmarks and tell you when you have succeeded. Here you've reached that number, now you've succeeded. In fact, money can go farther, it can reach into your heart and say something about you. You are a success. You're a winner now. You've accomplished this. And money is potent not because it just offers measurable success, because it can offer comfort and safety. So if you have a retirement account you think about it, That account is well-funded and healthy. It starts preaching to your soul, and it speaks a message of peace. It says, dear you, you are going to be well taken care of. You don't need to worry about the future. Everything is secure and good for you. Don't stress. Don't worry. I have you taken care of. And money also offers power. If you have money, you can get people to do what you want. You speak, and then people listen, and they don't only listen, but then they act, and they get you what you want, how you want it, when you want it. So money is a potent object, and that is why we often have such a hard time with it. And what happens is that when our heart, sinfully corrupted, comes into contact with money, all sorts of evil happens. We get anxious about money, don't we? We begin to worry about money. Do we have enough money for ourselves? We get greedy about money. We start to stretch for it and long for it and just work for it, trying to get more of it, lay our hands on it and bring it near to us. We get envious about money. We get angry that someone might have more money. Someone might have more. And we want them to have less. And not to be neglected, we get really stingy about money. When our hearts come into contact with it, we don't want to separate ourselves from it. We like it and what it brings to us, and so we hold tight to it, and we have a hard time willingly and gladly giving it away to others. And so money has this power, and we should understand this. Money has this power to reveal what is in our hearts and not just reveal what is in our hearts, but amplify and magnify what is in our hearts. If you have deficiencies in your hearts, you have sin in your heart, what money will do is it will take that sin, that deficiency, and show it. It will broadcast it out so you can see it and others can see it. And this is where Paul meets us in First Timothy. So Paul's words in chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, are for the church and they speak directly about the matter of money and how money should be used by God's people. And as we look at these three verses, it becomes very obvious that Paul has a goal for God's people. He wants God's people to go somewhere, to be something. And So Paul wants to retrain our hearts for that goal, what we hope and what we rest on, what we love, so that we would act differently and live differently with how we handle and use our money. And So what does Paul want to see What does Paul want to see? Just think this morning, what does Paul want me to look like as a member of God's people? Well, look at verse 18. Paul gives us his goal. He writes, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. As we just think about this verse, this verse gives us great hope. What a glorious verse. Paul reveals to us that there is a different possibility for the use of money. It doesn't always have to end in a, a train wreck of sin and evil and corruption and selfishness. It doesn't always have to end with a man enslaved to the dollar bill. Paul gives us a different possibility. He's pointing out if there is a heart cleansed by sin, the blood of Jesus comes and washes it. If there's a life sanctified to God by God's Spirit, Money can be put to good use. In fact, Paul expects money to be put to good use by God's people. It can be something that reveals, and not just reveals, but amplifies and magnifies the purity of our hearts and the progress we have made in our faith. And so money can show the sin in our hearts, but money can also show our faith and our our righteousness in Jesus. It can show what God's doing in us. And so Paul spells out his desire for God's people and he does so with precision you have to love verse 18 And so this is what God's people should look like God's people are to take what is given them and they should use it for good they're to take their wealth and to be workers of good Workers of good. In fact, they should be well known for their deeds. God's people shouldn't be known for their physical riches of dollars or homes or cars or vacations or toys, but for the vast riches of their kind deeds toward others. And so Paul wants God's people to be, to put another word on it, generous. And that means Paul wants God's people to be ready and willing to share what they have with others for the good of others. And so Paul writes out the goal for us. He says, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Now we need to sit with verse 18 a bit. It offers us great hope because money can be used for something else, not just evil, can be used for good. and, And we should assess ourselves here. Are these words true of you today? Are you a doer of good Could it be said of you that you are rich in good works, generous, ready to share what you have? Is your bank account, to put it in financial terms, rich with good works? Are you marked by a spirit of willingness and gladness to part with what you have for others? Does it make you happy to give? And as we think about these questions, this is where many of us find conviction. So Paul is holding out verse 18 to us. Here is what he wants among God's people. Here is the goal. And here we are. We're living over here. And there is this gap between verse 18 and where we are are living. I see some generosity, but not as much as Paul is talking about. There's some good works here, but I don't see the riches that Paul is talking about. So the question is, and this is what we want to focus on all morning, how do we grow up into verse 18? How do we get to where Paul wants us to be? How do we become generous, willing to share what we have? And and what Paul does as a good pastor is he gives us truth to push into our hearts and our souls so that we would become like verse 18. And I want to draw out four truths from Paul's words this morning to serve you towards that goal. So truth number one, riches are uncertain. Riches are uncertain. So verse 17, Paul writes, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. And so the point is not that hard to understand. Riches are fickle. Just read history. History is chock full of stories of men who have grained great wealth and then in a short time later have lost that great wealth. Just look at the news. You see story after story of men who have grained great wealth and then they Lose it. And Paul wants us to understand this. All wealth in this present age is fleeting. Whether it be homes or stocks or dollars or bitcoins, these things can be lost and they can be lost easily. Proverbs 23 verses 4 and 5 put it like this. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings flying like an eagle toward heaven. It's a good verse to memorize. It's like you're bird hunting, and you just see the bird, and before you can do anything, the bird's gone. It's flying away, and that's what wealth is like in this world. It just sprouts wings, and it flies away. The Bible wants us to think about wealth like that. It gets worse. Imagine with me for a moment that a new form of wealth is invented just comes out tomorrow it is something that can't be destroyed or burned down it is something that can be stolen or embezzled it's something that can't lose its value for some reason this wealth is totally and completely secure and we ask well paul are your words still true do they still apply to this wealth and paul would say yes yes they do and why brother sister you are going to die it doesn't matter how secure your wealth might be, but your hold on it is not very secure. Your days are, are so limited. The Bible tells us that we are just breaths and just grass in a field. We're here for a moment and then we're gone. So you see what Paul's trying to do in verse 17. He's trying to loosen up our grip on the temporal stuff of our lives. We often so hold tightly to these things, white knuckling it through life, trying to grab onto these things, keeping what is ours. But Paul comes to us and he preaches to us: all of it, every last single piece of it, is uncertain. And you must know this and push this into your heart. And so, loosen up your grip, grip on all of your stuff. Loosen up. It's uncertain. So that's our first truth. Riches are uncertain. Second truth. God is richly generous. And so we see from Paul that we cannot set our hope on the uncertainty of riches. That will only bring us disappointment. Instead, Paul tells us we must set our hope upon God and God alone. Now, there's good reason to do this. We set our hope upon God. Why? Because of who God is. He is our God. He is the immortal God, meaning that our God can never die. He is the immutable God, meaning that our God can never change. He is the almighty God, meaning that he has all power at his disposal. And the specific attribute that Paul latches onto in verse 17 is the attribute of God's generosity. Listen to Paul. He says, charge them not to be haughty, Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. And what is God like? What does God do? Paul writes, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So here we see the second truth. God is richly generous. So the evidence of Paul's assertion here is... All around us. Just take a moment and catalog the wealth of your life, the wealth you have at your disposal. Just close your eyes and, and mentally walk through it. Walk into your kitchen for a moment. Open up the fridge. How much food is in your fridge? Then then go to your pantry and open that up and go to some of your cupboards and open that up and look on top of your your, your, your cabinetry. Look on your countertop. You've food everywhere. Food for days. Or go to your room and open up your closet and and look at all the clothes you got clothes for every day of the week and every occasion and every season or take a step back and just look at where you live some of us live in apartments or or share homes some of us own homes but the odds are most of us have a roof over our heads that keep us dry We have a bed to sleep on. There's a heating system that keeps us warm in the bitter months of of winter. There's indoor plumbing, which is amazing. God's generous. Look at all the things that God has given you. And we can go a different direction. Think about creation. All of creation is a grand revelation of God's generosity. We cannot be atheists here. God has made absolutely everything. Think about the air you breathe. God made it. How generous is God? He gives you breath for every second of the day. Think about what you walked on or drove on to get here to church. There's sand and gravel and rock and concrete. God made all of it. Think about the light that beams down on your head. God is giving that to you day by day by day. You cannot escape the generosity of God in this world. It's everywhere and in everything. And not even the evil people, not even evil people escape God's generosity. For he causes the sun to shine upon them. And he causes the rain to water them. God is richly generous in all things. But as God's people, we know of God's generosity more than anyone else. For we have tasted God's generosity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here we find the heart of God revealed. For in the gospel of his son, God withholds nothing from his people. He happily and freely, with joy, gave his son, his beloved son, for the redemption of sinners. And Paul rejoices over God's generous love. Romans 6, 6-8, Paul says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, but God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God is generous in all things. And here's the question. Why does Paul remind us of God's generosity? Paul gives us this truth. What is the reason? Why is he marshalling this truth towards us? Well, I think one of the biggest obstacles to generosity is pride. What does pride say in the heart? Well, it says something like this. I earned this. I worked for this. I bought this. I sweat for this. And because I earned this and I bought this and I sweat for this and worked hard for this, I can do what I want with it and it is all mine and I am not giving it away because I deserve it. I deserve it. I'm not going to give it away to someone who hasn't worked as hard as I have. Not a chance. And what is Paul doing in verse 17? Paul is taking out his pastoral sledgehammer, and he is taking it to our pride, and he is breaking it up. Why do you have what you have? Why have you gotten to where you've gotten in your life? Why are such things in your life? Why are such virtues in your life? Why do you have these accomplishments in your life? And if we really understand the Bible, if we really understand our God, the only answer we can give is this. Because God is richly generous and he has been richly generous with me. Brother, sister, in Jesus, you are a recipient of gifts and that is all you are. You're a recipient of gifts. Nothing more, nothing less. And it is glorious. And it should smash our pride. That's truth number two. God is richly generous. Truth number three. God's gifts are to be used. God's gifts are to be used. So there's a strange teaching invading the early church. And we find evidence of this strange teaching in 1 Timothy chapter 4. There are some teachers who had come into the church and they were full of skepticism and they were skeptical, particularly about God's gifts. They weren't sure that God's gifts were actually good. And because they weren't sure that God's gifts were good, they were teaching people that they shouldn't use God's gifts. So, for example, they were forbidding marriage and sexual relations. And they required abstinence from all sorts of foods. Don't eat that. Don't marry. That's what they were teaching. But as we listen to Paul in 1 Timothy, Paul wants nothing to do with this sort of skepticism about God's gifts. He doesn't want God's people to neglect God's gifts or be unconcerned about God's gifts, whatever those gifts might be, whether it's marriage or food or money. Rather, he commands God's people to put these gifts to use. And he wants God's people to use God's gifts in two different ways. First of all, he wants us to use use God's gifts by enjoying them. He wants us to enjoy them. No father is pleased when he gives a gift to his child and the child takes that gift and hides it under his bed. Doesn't please the father. Even worse, no father is pleased when a father gives a gift to a child and the child says, no, thank you, I don't need that. I don't want that. Just think about it, a Christmas morning, the gifts are being opened up, mom and dad are watching, the kids are opening the gifts and the present is open and the child turns to mom and dad and says, I don't want this. It's terrible. Rather, what pleases a good father, he gives a gift to his child, and what does the child do? Uses it and uses it and uses it and uses it so much, it breaks it. That makes a father happy. And that's what Paul is writing about in verse 17: Who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And so the call is this: Use the gifts that God gives you by enjoying them, actually enjoying them. Take what God gives you and put it to use. Don't be like the the bradish child who says no or who hides it away, but actually use it. And as you use it, say thank you constantly to your father. You gave me this, Father. It is good, and I thank you for it. That's not all that Paul has in mind about gifts. We make use of God's gifts by enjoying them and by giving them away. And so we see in this text that our God isn't stingy. He gives us good gifts to enjoy, and he desires that we would become exactly like him, that we wouldn't be stingy or tight-fisted, but that we would take the gifts that he gives us and that we would give them away to others with liberality so that they might put those gifts to use and so give thanks to God and enjoy them. And Paul makes this clear in the text. It's really interesting. Look at verse 17 and verse 18. So, Paul says this in verse 17 God is what? What does he do? He richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So, just latch onto those words richly provides. And why does God richly provide? Well, he does it so that we might enjoy them, but also, verse 18, that this might be happened, that we might ourselves be rich in good works. God gives so that we might become rich in ourselves, namely rich in good works. You see that connection? what Paul wants God's people to be like and to be like that you need to use God's gifts and you need to use them by enjoying them and then by giving them away and this brings us to our last truth truth number four there is more than this there is more than this so one of the temptations that meets us every day is this this is it You've got 70, you've got 80 years to live on this earth, so you better make the most of these 70 or 80 years. You better enjoy the finer things of life. You better spend your money and get those things because you only live once. Take that trip. Don't skimp on it. Buy that item. Just do it. You've got 70 or 80 years and this is it. And no more pleasure, nothing else to enjoy. But as we understand the Bible, that is ludicrous. For there is... More. This isn't it. There is a coming age. Jesus shall return. And when he returns, he will raise all of his followers from the grave. And we will reign with Jesus for ages eternal. And it will be an age of joy and enjoyment. An age of riches and goodness. And this is what Paul wants us to see. He says this, verse 19. Thus, storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Did you hear Paul? What's he saying? He is saying, dear Christian, there is a future and do not forget that there is a future. He is saying there is a life and it is not necessarily the present one but a coming life, a true life. And what should absolutely floor us is this, generosity, the act of giving away what God gives to us, prepares us, makes us ready for the future. Generosity is something that makes us ready for the resurrection from the dead. That's stunning. And we should ask as God's people, well, how does generosity do that? Well, think about it like this. When we give away our money, we are saying something rather bold. We are saying, I believe that there is something of more value, something of more worth than today and tomorrow. When we with gladness give away our possessions, we are giving out this potent statement of faith to everyone. It is saying this, I value Christ and his kingdom. I love Christ and his promises and his rewards more than the present treasures of today. And I believe, I believe more than anything else, that there is more in this life. In fact, Paul makes clear we're doing something more than that. When we practice generosity as we give away money and things and time, according to Paul, we are gaining future treasure in that act. We are in that act of generosity stretching out and reaching for true life. So Paul tells us our fourth truth. Brother, sister, and Jesus, there is more than this. And so Paul's been teaching us this morning, and we need Paul's teaching. We need all of these truths. We just, we, we need them more than intellectually. We need them operating down in our hearts what we love so that we might act differently. And with all of Paul's teaching in front of us, I want to get to the practicalities of our challenge. So, our challenge is. Is give, give. And I hope that makes sense after listening to Paul, why this would be an appropriate challenge and why it's actually central to the Christian life. And so in this season, we have specific needs and I wanna set one need before you and it's a very immediate need. So in the coming months, we aim to add a second pastor to our staff, an associate pastor, and that means we need to pay a second pastor. If we're gonna hire him, we need to pay him so right now, our weekly budget runs at $5,075 a week. That's what we need to meet budget. And so when we hire another full-time pastor, we're going to, these are ballpark numbers, we're going to increase our giving about $1,600 a week. And so we're moving from 5075 to about $6,389. And so we'll need 6389 to meet budget each And so if you like to do math, we have about 50 households that regularly give to the ministry of the church. These are households that either monthly or weekly give. And so for to meet this challenge just with the households who regularly give already, that would mean of an increase of $32 per household per week to hire a second pastor. Now, our goal as an elder team as we lead you in this challenge, is to meet this weekly budget number of $6,389 before we make the hire. Ideally, we would like to meet this number by the month of October. And there's a reason for this. By meeting this number, first of all, we'll be in solid financial shape to make a hire. But even more, it gives us confidence as an elder team to pursue and recruit an individual to come on staff with us. like a big green flashing light in front of us as elders as you give now this challenge is going to meet you in, in two different ways first of all if you're not giving regularly to the ministry of the church the call is this in obedience to the lord jesus christ and his word i challenge you to determine to give regularly whether it's week by week or month by month and as you, I hope you can see from 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, giving is not a peripheral matter to the Christian life. I hope you can see it, it's essential to who you are as a Christian. Really reflect on verse 19. It prepares you for the resurrection. Now, when you are at this step in the Christian life, you haven't been giving regularly before. Maybe you've never met the challenge. Maybe you've never thought about it. Maybe you've been putting it off. I want to give you one piece of Wisdom. The number you give isn't the most important factor. It is a factor, and you need to grow in that. But the most important factor is just learning how to give week by week, again and again. You need to to develop the Christian virtue of generosity. And how do you do that? Well, you do it, first of all, by asking God that he would give you a generous heart, and then you just start doing it week by week, just giving a little bit away, just learning to gladly give that little bit away, learning step by step. It's like riding a bike. So that's the first part of this challenge. If you're not giving regularly to the ministry of the church, the call is this, in obedience to Jesus, make a start, and make a start somewhere, and the key is to do it regularly. Second, if you're giving regularly to the ministry of the church, the call is this, consider how you might Increase your giving so that we might meet this ambition to hire a second pastor. Now, obviously, this meets us as a congregation differently. For some of us, giving more is an easier matter. You can sit down today and look at your budget, and there are margins. You can move money around, and you can make an increase in giving, either 32 or more dollars a week. It's not a big deal. It's not going to hurt you. For others of us, there isn't the margin in the budget. To move money around, something has to be cut, and so this is where ambitions touch upon our desires as God's people. Do we want this? And if we want it, we have to get after it. Now, so for some of us, it would mean giving extra income away. So I know some men who have in the past, because there is an extra margin in their, in their budgets, they just can't magically make money appear. I've known men who have in the past who have who've taken on an extra job just for the sake of generosity, just consecrating it to the Lord or, or taking on an overtime shift saying, Lord, this is all yours. And so there's so many different ways to be generous and this call meets us differently as a congregation. But here's the challenge. How might you pitch in so that we as a people might meet this, this ambition and so hire a second Pastor. I want to end with this. So we've got this challenge. It's ending with a very practical note. We have these numbers to meet, and I've made these calls, and I'm pushing them on you, and you feel them this morning. So here's the thing about this challenge, and it should strike you as good news. We get to meet this challenge as a church. As a church, we're a people together. And even better than that, we get to meet this challenge as what? As God's people We're not just an organization in Thunder Bay like all the other organizations. We are God's people. We've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. We have a father who loves us. In fact, as Paul tells us, we have a father who's richly generous. And so we get to go and move forward as a congregation with this challenge in faith, believing our richly generous father will meet our needs so that we might move ahead together as a people. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in you, and we rejoice in this teaching. We need to hear all of these truths. Our hearts so easily get sidetracked. You know our hearts and how we cling to possessions and money. Would you forgive us now? Would you cleanse our hearts and would you unite them, that we might walk in your ways? Father, we ask that you would take all of these glorious truths and that you would press them into our hearts so that we might be changed, that we might become a generous people, ready and willing to share. And so, Father, we do this in faith. We don't look to ourselves to make this happen. We look to you because we know you are richly generous. And so we pray all of this in your son's great and glorious name. Please mm-hmm. stand.